I'm Michael Brennis, and this is the Showbiz Roundup. Bassist Ethan Fillion takes a respectful, well-researched approach to the music of Charles Mingus. This busy Chicago freelancer with degrees from Oberlin and DePaul and a long list of other accolades arranges this music always with an ear toward the composer's intent. His band, Meditations, the music of Charles Mingus, often appearing as a 10-piece ensemble, will be showcased on the Garver patio as a quartet featuring Russ Johnson, Alexis Lombre, and Dana Hall. Well, Ethan Fillion, uh, welcome to the Showbiz Roundup. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So you're bringing your 10-piece uh, Mingus Band. Is it called the Mingus Band? That's Ethan Fillion's Mingus Band? Yeah, so it's called uh, Meditations, the music of Charles Mingus. And actually, for the Madison show, I'll just bringing, be bringing a quartet. But we'll okay. be playing that repertoire. Um, and then the kind of fullest version of that group has 10 people in it. So who is in the quartet for the Garver show? Yeah, so it'll have uh, Rush Johnson on trumpet, Alexis Lombre on piano and Dana Hall on drums. Oh, no, no slouches in that bunch. No slouches there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, aside from the obvious, the fact that you, you are, and Charles Mingus was a bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, what attracts you to the music of Charles Mingus? Yeah, I, so Mingus was one of the first jazz composers that I, heard and really connected with uh, on a number of levels. I think his music captures kind of like what jazz means to me. Uh, so it means, you know, drawing from a really diverse wealth of styles and influences. Um, you can just hear a whole, you know, ton of information in any Mingus composition. Um, so that's always appealed to me. I think he like best encapsulates what third stream jazz sort of, ideally could should be um and that it's still very much black music but it is drawing from some of the themes uh that are in western classical music uh and he does it in a way where it's it's clear that he's kind of mastered a lot of those uh concepts like if you know you listen to his arco playing it's you know basically symphony level it's Mm -hmm. it's really pretty amazing so all of that's very appealing and then also i just think that mingus is a really kind of fascinating individual and artist and so i've always enjoyed reading about him and reading about his thoughts uh on the world and on you know social justice and the reason i wanted to start performing kind of his music specifically is i thought it would be good to play music that speaks to some themes that i've been thinking about um, in regards to social justice and his music, you know, is often titled uh, in things that relate to that, but also he would kind of speak about those things at concerts. And I think that's important that we do that at uh, this time. And so there's just a lot in his music and kind of his persona that I'm, I'm basically always thinking about and kind of always reflecting on him as sort of a touchstone for what jazz means to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we touched on this just a little bit, but you mentioned the social justice aspect of Charles Mingus's music, and you know his music definitely reflects that. He was quite a champion of social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the elements of jazz and music in general that speak to this? Um, I mean, after all, instrumental music is a is an abstract art form. Mm-hmm. Um, 
How does it speak to particular themes? Yeah, so I'll talk about one of his compositions in particular, uh, the tune Pithecanthropus erectus. So this is a, a piece of his that is kind of the least abstract in what it is about and what it means. So he described it as being a tone poem that uh, depicts the way that mankind goes through this process throughout history. So there's like kind of four stages of it. Our first uh, man learns to stand upright. Then he is proud of that accomplishment. He feels like he has, you know, done something great. And then he, as a result of that feeling, decides to assert that superiority or supposed superiority over others. And in the end, that destroys our humanity, right? So you hear in the piece, these four things play out over and over in different sections. And uh, I think that that has, you know, a lot of themes that are, are interesting and that we see play out on large scale, right? We see this play out in large institutions like slavery, uh, but we also see it play out in just the way that we all develop our own prejudices. And one of Mingus's points uh, that he makes kind of consistently is that just this is the way we are. And he doesn't think that we can be necessarily different, but he thinks that we can work against those impulses basically through love. That's mm -hmm. like, that's a very common theme uh, in Mingus's writing and his interviews, the idea of love. And I think that music in, and instrumental music, in, because we're in this abstract space, the idea of like, you know, kind of giving a loving performance, treating our fellow musicians with love is a, is a pretty great concept. And one that his, his music makes very possible in the way that there's collective improvisation, in the way that the forms kind of cycle through different sections and make sure that everybody's still very engaged with each other at all times. So, uh, in the abstract, I think that uh, I hope that playing his music is sort of a model for how we should interact with each other as people, right? That we should be uh, kind and caring and uh, open to different ideas, um, but that we recognize that we are coming from a place where we do have prejudice that, that we have to work against and that uh, we can kind of do that through music and then also hopefully elsewhere in our lives. Do you feel like Mingus's music is kind of ignored in a way in this day and age. I mean, he's certainly, uh, from my perspective, gets a lot less. People play less of his music than they do, say, of some of his contemporaries um, mm -hmm. other, or artists who were active in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it's kind of related to that. How, how do you compare, and you talked about this a little bit with the, the third stream and um, Gunther Schuller and things like that, but um, how would you contrast his uh, him as a composer in comparison with, say, Thelonious Monk or Duke Ellington or John Coltrane, others of his contemporaries, who whose music seems to be more enduring from enduring from some perspective? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's one that I actually like. I don't know that I have the right answer. I have some guesses. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think you're right. His music is performed just demonstrably less than those other composers. Um, but he's clearly a still kind of regarded as like a titan of the canon, right? So one reason is, is I think his music is hard uh, because it contains these multitudes of influences, right? Yeah. So if you dive into a piece that looks like it's probably 
you're like, okay, that's fairly straightforward. You may actually find that there's a lot more in it that you, you know, didn't necessarily know just from maybe listening to it. Then you go to approach it yourself. There are some challenges. Um, it also relies on the musicians you're playing with drawing from a variety of backgrounds. If you come and you just played bebop on his tunes, it's not really going to feel right. Mm -hmm. If you just play blues language on his tunes, it's not going to feel right. Right. So he created this environment that was distinctly him and was a distinct melting pot of different influences of his band and his own influences. Right. So the forms in his compositions are often pretty complex. And so to play them, correctly the way that he played them is a challenge and then going off of that to play them in a way that is your own is an additional challenge right because you can't just take a melody and be like oh this is mine now i'm going to put some different things behind it it sort of often feels wrong because the music is so intentional in the way that it goes through these different phases so i think that's one one challenge of it Uh, Another challenge is that a lot of the recordings he did are with large ensembles, but unique large ensembles. So not just a big band, right? So it's not as if uh, you can just take these big band charts, although, you know, the Mingus bands, so these legacy bands have those. But his compositions were generally performed by pretty unique instrumentations. There aren't that many just standard quartet with a saxophone, piano, bass, and drum recordings. Uh, And so I think that all of those things go into his music just getting performed uh, less. And then to compare him to his contemporaries, I think he's obviously so, in, he's so influenced by a lot of the things that those contemporaries are influenced, right? So the Ellington influence in his music is so profound. Definitely. Uh, many of his compositions sound for, you know, 16 measures at a time straight out of the Ellington Strayhorn songbook. Um, He's also really influenced by Charlie Parker and the language uh, of bebop. And then he's also, but then I do think he draws more than those uh, composers that you mentioned, Ellington and Coltrane. He does draw more from Western classical music. And I think at times he draws more from uh, church music, Uh, even though that's definitely a part of Coltrane and Monk's playing and their compositions. Uh, the way that Mingus incorporates different parts of gospel and blues that are basically, to me, coming from the church, I think are kind of distinct. Uh, he's more willing to just have a section that sounds right out of that, rather than to have it kind of incorporated in a subtle way. Uh, so those are all some differences. The other one is that, he, so he is composing at a time where free jazz is starting to become a concept, right, that critics are labeling free jazz. But there is something happening in the late 50s and the early 60s where musicians are getting away from just the standard forms and trying to use their ears more and develop kind of new ways of interacting. And I think Mingus is a big part of that. Mingus also, in a lot of interviews, is pretty critical of free jazz um, and of the idea that people are just kind of playing what they want. So he's in, I think, a really interesting space where the music is at once freer than a lot of his contemporaries in that there are these opportunities for collective improvisation over either vamps or standard har- or like just, you know, kind of simple harmony. Um, or sometimes there are opportunities to change the tempo, uh, to change the dynamics, right? There's, there's a lot of freedom there. So it's more free than many of his contemporaries, but it's also more constrained 
than his other contemporaries because he has those opportunities for freer improvisation happen within a sort of thematic structure that he wants uh, to be very intentional. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times when I transcribe Mingus compositions that I love, I, I, and this happens less now that I'm kind of familiar with it, but I'll have a section where I'm like, oh, this sounds like it's free. You know, it's just, they're playing and they're responding. And then I listen to it more and more. And I realize that the structure is actually just very sophisticated and there's a sort of freedom happening over it. Uh, so one tune that always strikes me like this is the song, What Love, which is a somewhat contrafact on what is this thing called love. And the solo section, if you just listen to it at first pass, it sounds like they're just kind of making their way broadly through the form with a lot of freedom. But then the more you dive in, you realize there's actually a very specific structure. And I'm not exactly sure how he would have written that out or if he wrote it out because he liked to teach things by ear as well. Uh, But you realize like, oh, this is a whole compositional framework and improvisation is an important part of that aesthetic. So uh, it's still happening over structure in a way that a lot of his contemporaries, I think, drew lines between those two. This is so interesting. I mean, this is, it's so fun to talk to people who have shedded, you know, this music and, and really um, investigated it deeply. It's, it's so profound. I mean, so many things. I'm mean, even like I have friends who've done the same sort of thing with the music of Ornette Coleman and, and yeah. things that sound completely free. They realize, wait a minute, they were, they were watching a clock or something that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that this is grouped in sevens or whatever the case may be. It's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ornette is another good example where there are certainly times where it's very free, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the times we just assume it's free because of those things or because of assumptions that we have, uh, or because we read a critic who at the time said that it was totally made up. Right. They just were being critical of it and wanted to use that as a criticism. And then the deeper you listen to it, you realize, Oh, there's actually maybe a ton of structure. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk a lot of, times with a, a friend of mine who's really into Ornette about the tune piece, right? Where there's a big difference between this solo section is free and this solo section sort of follows the form, but doesn't necessarily keep the number of measures the same, right? And you hear that a lot on piece where there are definitely, there's an A and there's a B and they are playing the A's and B's in some part mm-hmm. together, Charlie and, uh, Charlie Hayden and Ornette Coleman are playing this together, but it's just fluid when those things happen. And that's like, that's a really important distinction because it definitely is a different way of approaching a song. And it's one that uh, I think we can think about on standards. You know, it's a choice to go to the bridge, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you think about that, even if you're playing over the form, I do think it opens up the way that you approach form generally. Right. And I mean, and you think about blues players from earlier Mm -hmm on who exactly uh, you know went to the four chord when they wanted to go to the four chord and when it yep. made sense lyrically or whatever the case may be exactly yeah um what's your approach like in terms of um arranging these mingus tunes for your groups i mean whether it's the 10 piece or the four mm-hmm. piece i mean you must have to make some compromises uh, or artistic decisions in terms of how you want to arrange the tunes yeah Absolutely. So uh, my process starts with, I always want improvisation 
to be at the fore. Because I think that what, uh, what really resonates with me about Mingus's music, kind of like I'm saying, is this uh, approach of treating improvisation like a sort of ideal act of love, right? So that's when, when I hear his bands, that's what I hear. I just hear love kind of at all times. There's just this joy and also agony and they're going through it together. And central to that is the idea that improvisation is an important part of the aesthetic of this music. So I never want to over arrange his pieces in a way that gets rid of that element, right? Mm -hmm. If anything, I might want to add more of that element at certain points. So I basically start in my, my broad processes. That, that's my ideal is make sure that that feeling that I get from the music is there. And then what I do is, you know, I transcribe uh, the songs. So one of the tunes that we play in the 10 piece band is once upon a time, there was a holding corporation called old America, which is later called uh, the shoes of the fisherman's wife are some giant ass slippers. Uh. Right, just two great titles. Um, and so there are two recordings of this. One is this live at UCLA recording where the band uh, is pretty shaky on a couple of things. They start it three times, I think. Uh, that recording is definitely worth checking out because you can hear Mingus send the, a couple of members of the band backstage to practice mm. after the first two false starts. Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of an awesome moment, I think. Uh, so that sounds pretty different than the very arranged uh, Shoes of the Fisherman's Wife, where it's a you know, pretty pristine album recording, right? Yeah. And so I take different things from those recordings. I kind of compare them. I decide what parts I like, what parts I want to keep, uh, and then just arrange it out for the group, uh, opening up certain sections for where I think there should be a little bit more improvisation or encouraging that to happen. Um, but generally, I try to keep the structures for the most part the same, because, again, that's those structures are so amazing in the way that they capture the push and pull of uh, very specific direction, but also opportunities for individuals to assert their own agency in mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of broadly how I approach the arrangements sometimes. And then with the smaller groups... Um, I'm, you know, thinking more about like his work with the quintet and uh, working from that perspective. So thinking more about like, oh, okay, I only have a couple of voices, but I still want to be able to use different uh, timbres and different lead voices uh, in ways that speak to his music. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of the uh, pieces we play is called Meditations on a Pair of Wire Cutters. And which is a really uh, wonderful piece and is kind of why I started uh, thinking this would be fun to do as a large group because uh, there's just so much in this song and it kind of just was like, oh, I could expand this out and it would be even more of that sound. Uh, so in the small group, that's a great piece for the bass has the melody sometimes. Then you can have a horn player have the melody the other times. The piano has a whole part. So on a piece like that, I basically keep it the same in terms of what he wrote, but there are lots of different versions of that. So really the same means picking a couple versions and making some choices about how I want those to be pieced together in a way that works for whatever group uh, I'm working with at the time. Mm -hmm. Is there any truth to the, the 
I guess it's a rumor or whatever, that Mingus taught his compositions to his bands kind of by rote or or were things notated or was it a combination of the two? Yeah, so he definitely did that for a period of time where he exclusively taught things to his ear, his musicians by ear. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had this pro this uh, program, the Jazz Workshop, right? And that was where he really exper- experimented with that. So I, the tune Pithecanthropus Rectus, my understanding is that's tuned totally by ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, then later on, especially once he started working with, you know, orchestras, uh, that wasn't as true. But I think his, his instinct was always musicians should learn this by ear. Um, and so that also kind of informs my arranging. Like, I don't want to write that much stuff that's very intricate so that musicians are thinking that I need to be on the page because like Ethan wrote this counter line to Mingus's melody. I'd rather have the musician, if I want a counter line, that's an opportunity to me for improvisation. Unless I'm taking the counter line from Mingus, in which case, well, he wrote it. So it's very intentional, right? Right. So I feel kind of uncomfortable asserting a lot of like melodic control on these pieces because he's so intentional in all of these these songs and he rewrote them. And so there's always stuff to pull from. So occasionally I'll insert something that I like, some rhythmic device, um, some harmonic movement that I want to stretch a little bit more, but I really have to hear it all the way through and be confident in it for me to feel like I can justify asserting that kind of control. Um, shifting gears just a little bit, um... You've received a number of awards, grants, various accolades, uh, International Society of Bassists, Year of Chicago Music Featured Artists, Luminarts Jazz Fellowship. Does it take a certain understanding of how the philanthropic world works to achieve this kind of thing? Uh, I think so, yeah. I mean, otherwise, I guess I wouldn't have applied for some of these things. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it's such an important part, sort of sadly, of the jazz scene now is that like we do in some part rely on that income to produce new things. So I'm planning to record two records this year, uh, both of which are like in large part funded by the things you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And without those things, the records would have to be on a much smaller budget, um, which would mean, you know, maybe hiring fewer people or getting a less uh, intense mixing process. So I, I do think that the competition aspect of those are, is a little strange. It feels a little unmusical. Um, the way that I counter that is, so for example, the International Society of Bassists competition, um, I just went and I listened to everybody instead of you know just holding up in my practice room, getting ready to go. I just like, I warmed up and then I, I go and I listen to people and I just tried to enjoy it. Um, and I tried, uh, to keep in mind that if, and this has happened, I, uh, was a finalist in a, in prior years. And when I didn't win, it's like, yeah, well, I heard everybody and I really liked what the person who won won, or uh, I really liked what the person who won did, but I like what I'm doing more. And so it doesn't bother me that the judges didn't choose me because that's okay. That's, that's who they chose. And that's great. I'm glad that person has the opportunity Hopefully next time I'll, you know, curate it maybe a little bit more towards what I, you know, kind of heard them enjoying. And, uh, but most of all, I go there and I just try to hear other great bassists and get inspired by what I hear, which 
is what um, happens. So for anybody who's like competitions are bad, yeah, I agree. But um, they're also a great opportunity to hear some of your peers in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that. But I think grants for albums are sort of necessary mm-hmm. um, unless you just have 9K lying around that you can fully fund an, an album, which if you do, great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's just the economics of today where you can't mm-hmm. make a living making records, selling records and playing shows. You just, exactly. can't make, you just can't make that work unless, you know, there's an upper echelon obviously that can, but. Yeah. But it's so, it's really rare to, to be in that space where you can just definitely count on making a lot of money from a record. That's pretty rare. I mean, I was, I always think about this when I listen to Mingus's album, Let My Chil- Children Hear Music. But this is a full orchestra uh, recording this album that he got paid to do. And if I was like, I want to do this album with a full orchestra, it would cost me well over $10,000. You know, that's, that's a big swing in the way that these things, um, in the way that these things change. Definitely. Well, Ethan, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Um, very much looking forward to the show. Um, I'm so grateful that folks, you in particular, are sort of uh, taking care of the music of Charles Mingus. It's something I've definitely missed, yeah. you know, in, in public performance. And, and it's really going to be great to have you on the Garver patio. Ten-piece, four-piece. I mean, hopefully we'll get the ten-piece at some point, but uh, really looking forward to the quartet. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to bring bring it up in the future. That'd be great. Thanks again. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. That's it for another episode of the Showbiz Roundup. If you'd like more information about this show or any of the past or future shows presented by Bluestem Jazz, you can head over to bluestemjazz.org. And you can follow my doings or be in touch via rattletickbuzz.com. Catch you later. <laughs>